The plague of pornography impacts all of us in some form. With the best of intentions, we try to help others break free from this evil plague and often become frustrated that nothing seems to work. This leads us to our Liberating Saints virtual library, where we've gathered interviews from some of the finest therapists, authors, and experts on how to help others break free from the struggle of pornography. If you'd like to gain access to 20 plus interviews that will help you be better prepared as a leader, as a parent, or as a loved one of those struggling with pornography, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash liberating. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747. Hey everyone, this is Kurt Frankum, the host of the Leading Saints podcast, and welcome back. Another episode, we just keep churning these out, and it's so fun to see the numbers grow with each episode. Now, if you're new to Leading Saints, uh, we're an organization that a nonprofit organization that strives to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And uh, regardless if you're an official leadership calling or have an official title of some sort, we all have opportunities to lead, and so that's what we speak to. We hope you enjoy your time here. Now, this episode is a great example of how awesome the Leading Saints podcast can be because I sit down with Dan Duckworth. And Dan was actually introduced to me by a former guest of the Leading Saints podcast, Brooke Romney, uh, who you should definitely check out her episode as well. But I'm so grateful that Brooke connected us. Dan and I hit it off right away. We became instant friends. We think a lot alike, but we also challenge each other's ideas and perspectives. And when I say that, I mean, uh, he's the one that's doing the teaching to me. And uh, he has such rich experience uh, at Michigan, the University of Michigan, and got into some consulting there. And uh, anyways, he, he jumps into the his background and what makes him awesome. So you're going to love this one. Definitely share it. Uh, take some notes. You're going to listen to this one again and again. If you're on a treadmill, keep going. Come on, you got this. Push a little f- harder. Put the speed up a few more notches as we jump into this episode with Dan Duckworth. All right, today I'm sitting down with Dan Duckworth. How are you, Dan? I'm great. Thanks, Kurt. Now, you're an old friend at this point. We have had conversations that would have made fantastic podcast episodes, but sorry, that, those were between us. <laughs> so, we'll never know. That's right. Now, we were first introduced by a former guest of the podcast, uh, Brooke Romney. And uh, she, I, I ran into her at an event after I interviewed her, and she said, you've got to talk with Dan Duckworth. He, he's got some leadership thought that you need to share. And uh, we, so we went to lunch and it was quickly evident that uh, you've thought about a few things with leadership. So tell us your background, put you into context as what does the audience need to know about Dan? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm honored to be here, Kurt. I'm honored, uh, I'm honored that Brooke would think about me that way. You know, we're old friends from Michigan, Brooke and Mike Romney. Um, and now that they're in Utah and we're in Utah, it's, we've been having fun reconnecting with them. Cool. But I am a, a leadership professional. I work as, a, as an independent professional providing leadership services to you know businesses, to organizations of every stripe. And when it comes down to it, what we do is we try to change the way people think about themselves, about the world, about leadership, and about organizations. And as we do that, we're really trying to raise their leadership capacity to deliver the outcomes that they want in their life, at their home, in their homes, and especially in their businesses. That's obviously the focus of our work. I started out as a project manager leading change projects within organizations. And I somehow usually ended up working with executives. Executives fall into two camps, generally those who have big ideas. Well, there's probably more than two camps, but of those who don't accomplish great things, there are two camps. Those who have big ideas and don't know how to pursue them, 
and those who don't have big ideas and therefore aren't pursuing anything. Hmm. Um, and I found myself working over the first uh, you know decade of my career with these two different types of executives, basically coaching them how to do uh, the big things they wanted to do or how to develop the vision that their people were calling for. I did that for about a decade, um, including some schooling uh, back at the University of Michigan. And at that point, I had hired a, a leadership development professional to come in and help me with one of my projects. And when that project ended, he started to ask me and recruit me to come and work with him as a consultant on the outside, which was a huge paradigm shift for me because mm-hmm. I, at that point, didn't have a, a very positive perspective on consultants. Yeah. And uh, I remember a conversation we were sitting probably for the fifth or sixth time talking about this. And he finally said, look, what's your problem? Like, what's the big holdup? Why don't you just come in and do this? Or I, I probably didn't have anything else better going on. And you could see that. <laughs> I said, because consultants are like leeches and he didn't miss a beat. I mean, he's a consultant, right? Yeah. He didn't miss a beat. And he said, then why did you hire me? Ooh. And I missed a beat because he got me. I right? balls yeah. back in my court and I had to stop and think about it. And I said, this, his name is Sean Quinn. And I said, Sean, it's because you're different. And he said, then you can choose to be different too. Wow. Right. It's powerful. And so that basically was it. That was the clincher. And I said, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to try to do it differently. And what I learned, and I, I experienced this already with Sean, but Sean and his father, Bob or Robert Quinn, who is a national guru on leadership and a former guest of our podcast former so, guest, and his sister was on as well. And probably future guest. I'm That's sure, right. Oh yeah. At some point. I, I'm going to just hand the organization over to Bob. But anyways. <laughs> so what I learned about Sean and Bob is that they are different. They choose to be different. What I didn't know at that time was the amount of energy and effort they put into choosing to be different than just the normal consultant. And basically, when we study transformational leaders in organizations, that's one of the things, that's one of the characteristics that's common to them is how hard they work at continually refreshing themselves to be a transformational leader. And it's no different with the work that Sean is doing and Bob is doing. And now that I'm trying to do for these last five years is continually refreshing myself to be a transformational leader. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been doing that for about five years. About two years ago, we had this crazy prompting to sell our house and live in a trailer for a year. So we did that, drove around the country. Then we felt you know, prompting to settle in Utah. So I've been in Utah for the past year. And as I've been here, I've had a series of ideas and impressions about different ways that I needed to do my work. So I've spent the last year really developing those ideas and, and interviewing people, you know, formal one-on-ones or just informal as I have opportunities to engage with people, learning about Utah, Utah's leadership culture, what's unique here, and what it is that we need to accomplish specifically for the people in the state of Utah, but also for, you know, in general, the leadership development, you know, model that exists today. Yeah. So now you're, uh, you're building, would you say you're, you're building your, uh, an additional consulting practice here in Utah where you, you hope to, to influence leadership here? Yeah. Yeah. More than a consulting practice, I'm, I'm trying to build a movement. And I won't say that I'm the only one trying to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it deep change for all. And, um, you know, I believe in that enough that I, turn my website URL name into that deepchangeforall.com because that's really the mission yeah. of what I'm about. Um, I'll, I'll tell you when I got here to Utah, you know, I'm, I'm from here, born and raised here, lived away for, you know, 12, 15 years, 18 years probably actually. And as I got back, I was reconnecting with old friends, you know, meeting new neighbors and so forth. And the first six people that I had a meaningful conversation with about work were broken. Hmm. And these are not people that you would ever look at on the surface and say, this person is broken, right? But because I do this for a living, I know the right questions to ask. And as soon as we get into talking about the way things really are, not the way they want the world to think they are, 
it's clear that they're broken and that their work experience, whether they're executives or whether they're first line employees, their work experience is killing them. Yeah. And this has always been what has moved me in this leadership development space. It pains me to know that moms and dads go home at night and they are worse parents because of what they experienced at work. Okay. Because it's draining the energy. It's sucking the life out of them. And when they go home, they might be stressed out. They might be edgy. You know, they might be preoccupied or distracted, but they might just simply be drained. Right. And so they don't bring their best selves to their families yeah. because there's nothing left at the end of the day or to their callings that they Yeah. I was just going to mention that they don't, right? if they don't bring the best selves to their family, they're not bringing it on Sunday. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Or on Wednesday night or whatever it may, yeah. may be early morning seminary. And so as I've worked, you know, you know, with, primarily not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that's always been a motivating factor for me, is we want to get you to the point, your organization, you as a leader and your culture that you're surrounded, we want to get it to the point where it builds you up, it grows your character, it adds energy and life to you, so that when you go home at night, your kids get a better mom and dad, or your neighbors get a better neighbor, or your parishioners get a better pastor or bishop, mm -hmm. right? Because you were at work. Right. Not in spite of work, but because of work. Yeah. Okay? And you're there most of the time. I mean, a lot of the time anyways. Right? Probably more often than we should be. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of the motivating factor for me. So I get to Utah and the first six people, I, you know, and I'm curious. I'm curious because I've been away for so long. What is it like here? What is work culture like? Is it different because there's so many members of the church here and there's such a, you know, a conversation about you know, gospel principles, you know, on a regular basis in our homes and in our churches yeah. and so forth. I'm curious, is it different? And what I find out in the first six is there's a lot of similarities to what's being experienced in the rest of the world. Okay? Yeah. Or maybe some unique dynamics that are here because of that religious culture. Yeah. And that's actually, that's yeah, fascinating. Closer to Mike, so. That's fascinating to me that uh, you bring that up because, you know, I kind of, I have a list of the, the key themes of what I've learned about Utah mm -hmm. as I've been touring for the last year. And you're not here to bag on Utah. You know, bag on Utah. <laughs> it's just these are these are perceptions. These are these are the same as you'd find anywhere else. Yeah. Okay. Number one, we need deep change, right? We need positive leadership. We need to learn how to do this at work. Okay. That's number one, and that's the same everywhere. Yeah. Okay. Number two, Utah doesn't prioritize leadership development. Okay. Now, most organizations don't. I think that's fair to say they don't put as much priority on it as they could. But in Utah, there seems to be a particular conservative, you know, fiscal conservative outlook on, you know, spending money on something that might be considered as tangential or superfluous, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, and part of that also might be, you know, one of the other key learnings that I had here, I was curious, is this whole Silicon Slopes thing real? Hmm. Or is this just so much marketing? You know, I, I lived in Ann Arbor for 10 years and <laughs> yeah. the city of Ann Arbor, the university, they, they do a lot to market themselves as a tech hub and an entrepreneurship center and so forth. And there's a lot of great things going on there, but I also noticed that a lot of it is self-talk, right? Yeah. What I discovered here in Utah is it's real. Hmm. I mean, my neighbors have sold three companies and they're on their fourth one and they all work in a startup environment. I mean, not everybody's working in that high-tech startup environment, but there's a lot of it going on here, right? And as I've met and sat down with you know CEOs and vice presidents of these tech startup companies, what I'm finding is it's, it's genuine and it's real, okay? Now, the other thing that I'm finding with these, with these tech startup companies is they all subscribe to the new age millennial culture of what organizations should look like. You know, we kind of think of a Google or, or a Starbucks or something like that. Foosball tables, you know, foosball that's tables, <laughs> ping pong, mountain bikes, the cafeteria. Up, that's you know? something I see a lot is the in, you know, in house cafeteria. So they all subscribe. They all know the right colors to paint the walls and so forth. Right. Mm -hmm. But I've actually found very few of them that actually 
live the positive leadership values in their day-to-day decision-making and how they relate to each other. It's not that they're bad people. It's not that they're toxic organizations. It's just that there's a different level of when you actually live these values when you're pressured, right? It's easy to be a nice person when everything's going well, right? But when all of a sudden there's a conflict over resources or a conflict between people, right? What's our default? What's our leadership behavior? What do we go to, right? That's what the culture is made up out of. Hmm. It's made up out of the memory of how we responded in those kinds of situations. And the people will either engage or hold back based off of the collective memory of how we've dealt with the people in those kinds of situations. Yeah. So any other, as far as, uh, you know, perceptions of the Utah leadership culture that that you've picked up on, they haven't mentioned it. Well, I'd say there's there's one more, something I call the nice guy phenomenon or the nice Hmm. gal phenomenon. I refer to the nice guy syndrome. Syndrome, Uh we could call it that too, right? (laughs) Uh And that is, you know, so we have egos that we use. The the ego is our self-image. It's how we prop ourselves up, keep ourselves safe, you know, psychologically. And we tell ourselves oftentimes that we are better than we actually are in terms of our performance. So when you get nice guys and nice gals who need to prop themselves up because in their religion, they are taught there's a certain way to be that's right and good. And if you're not that way, it makes you feel guilty and bad. So we go through a series of psychological tricks, telling ourselves stories and so forth to make ourselves feel better about our performance, even though the people around us might experience something differently from us. I first encountered the nice guy and nice gal syndrome when I was working with a bunch of people from Tennessee, Hmm. strongly religious. I mean, so pro-family, just amazing. So much so that when we were living in the trailer, I told my wife I wanted to relocate to Tennessee. Wow. Because I wanted to raise my kids around these kind of people. It's awesome. Yeah. But when the pressure hits and the stress is on and there's quarterly earnings and, and global CEOs bearing down on your back and so forth, what we discovered, these people discovered is that they were shifting how they were performing at work. Okay. And they were very subtly undermining, micromanaging, controlling and doing things that were actually pushing their people away, making their people have a very difficult experience yeah. at work. And I remember the example of a guy, I won't give his name, but you know, he was a very positive guy, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. And as he went through a one-year leadership program with us and became more familiar with his true influence on the people around him, he began to make changes. Yeah. And it was, from our perspective, it was amazing. It was awesome to watch. From his perspective, it was deeply humbling. Because he recognized for the first time that who he'd become over the last five years was not who he wanted to be or who he told himself every night that he was. In fact, he, he wrote in a story, uh, we have them finish the program by writing their story of change. You know, he wrote about this experience, literally standing in front of the mirror and not recognizing the person in the mirror. And as he began to make changes, uh, one of his key people who'd been with him for the past 15 years came up to him and said, I just want to tell you how glad we are to have you back. And he said back, what do you mean? And he said, well, we know you've been really stressed and we've been trying to be patient for the last several years, but it's been hard, but we are so glad to have the real you back. Wow. And of course that was humbling for him, but also exhilarating to know that he was making positive change in the right direction. And then as a result of that, the organization is making its own transformational changes, you know, because the leaders bring their whole selves to work. Yeah. I want to dig into that a little bit as far as this nice guy syndrome, because as you mentioned, you see it in Tennessee as well. It's not just a Utah leadership thing, but it's very common, I'd say, in very orthodox communities, religious communities, because obviously the gospel does something to us. And generally, a group of people have a uh, uplifting experience that changes them, right, through Christ and so forth. But then those that maybe haven't had similar experiences or those that that are, are in that community, they try and just mimic that Look how happy he is. You know, he's so he's uh, so self-giving, and 
wants to do everything for people, right? And so we try and we sort of put that on our ego a little bit and then we take it to work. And uh, Liz Weisman sort of categorizes this as uh, accidental diminishers, right? Of the, you have the best intentions. It's not like you're a jerk or that you don't know how to lead or you're just a mess. You have the best intentions and you're loving everybody. But then when these high pressure situations come around, you think, okay, we need to maintain this this level that we're at. So, hey, why don't I come to your desk and I'll help you with that micromanage, right? right. Micromanage that thing or whatever it is. And so, this nice guy sort of perpetuates poor leadership, even though we have the best intentions to be a great leader. Right. And subconsciously, we, we tend to measure ourselves and our self-worth based on how much we get done and how good we look doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, when the poor performance of other people, whether that's our employees or our you know, our colleagues that we're working with in a bishopric or, you know, on the ward council level or a presidency or whatever, when they begin, or our children, when they begin to underperform and it starts to threaten our self-worth, right? How much do I get done and how good do I look doing it? We can't help ourselves often from intervening mm-hmm. and saying, I'm going to help you do this the right way, right? Mm-hmm. And what we don't recognize is in that subtle shift of I'm taking over, I'm telling you how this will be done. There's so many latent assumptions embedded in that. Uh, that are influencing the relationship that we have with that person, right? Because we're essentially communicating to them, you don't know what you're doing. I'm smarter than you and you need my help. Not only that, but if this is, you know, the other other assumption is this is a hierarchy and that it's my right, duty, even obligation to fix your performance, right? And that sends over time, that sends a repeated message and that gets built in both to the psyche of the individual, but it gets built into the culture, Hmm. okay? And that's the key thing is there's another much deeper layer on this because when it gets built into the culture, we start to behave and act that way, not because we even want to, but because the culture demands it of us. Okay. And we all subconsciously are striving constantly to meet the expectations of the cultures that we live in. Yeah. So true. And and that you uh, wrote a fantastic article on the website called How to Design a Perfect Ward, where you talk about this dynamic that sometimes we we not only see this in, in the secular office, but we bring this to our church experience where we are trying to I get as much done as possible and look really good while doing it, right? There's a reward or a a dopamine hit when we do our home teaching or that we're really good ministers uh, in the ward or that, uh, you know, we magnify our calling that, wow, look, you know, he's doing such a good job. Look how he's doing that, right? We're, We're trying to get a lot done. And so, that naturally, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we want effective people that are doing a good job and trying to magnify their calling. But at the same time, it begins to be a facade that we we build and we hide behind our, with our real problems and what's really going on. Right. And this is the biggest barrier towards transformational leadership and building transformational relationships, is, which is what I wrote about in mm-hmm. the article. It's caring how other people think of us. Okay. So imagine we've now got a, a situation in our world today where we have to have two adult leaders in every youth class. Okay. So imagine now that you have a goal to become a transformational teacher to a Sunday school class, but there's another adult now in that room. If we were to really break it down, if we could get inside your psyche, so much of your energy, your psychic energy is spent managing how you look to that other adult. And that psychic energy is not being poured into the children. It's also not being poured into making a magical experience, you know, in that setting where the spirit can be, where testimonies can be grown and so forth. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this happens repeatedly in, in our church environment where as we perform, we're, we're worried about being judged. We're worried about the haters. We're worried about the gossipers. We're worried about, you know, we, we don't want the bishop to call us and say, why are you doing this? Right. right? And the bishop doesn't want the stake president to ask him what's going on. And the stake president doesn't want the area authority to ask him what's going on. Right. And so psychologically, we limit our potential 
simply because we're making assumptions about what other people might think about right. us. And we we all do this. This is in the human ex- experience, the human this psyche. Normal. Even myself. I mean, I'm you know, Mister Leadership Guy. I got my podcast. I've talked to incredible people. Three hundred plus episodes. Like I, I get these principles, but still, on Sunday, I'm in a new ward right now. I still catch myself sort of posing in a way, saying, you know. I've been a bishop, you know, I, I've been in a state. I get this, you know, I can help out, right? And, and again, I'm not saying that, but even just the way I'm handling myself, I'm worrying about, how's my new bishop perceive me? I wonder what that guy in Sunday school perceives me, where, because I come from a background when I was bishop, people perceive me in a very positive light, right? Whether that was my own doing or just the title, like this is something, nobody's immune from this and we're not saying we figured it out now. Those listening need us to straighten up. This is something we, we all experience. Well, when you've served in high church callings, you're used to the people, you know, if you've done a good job, you're used to the people having love and admiration for you. It's, yeah. it's natural, right? right? And you know, in your situation where you, you moved, all that credibility, all that reputation that you're used to riding on because people just give it to you, mm-hmm. right? Because they've had those experiences with you. It's all gone. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you're just one of many, right? But we want to be special. We want to be recognized. We want to build that self-worth and keep that self-esteem where it was, right? And so we do subtly engage in these types of behaviors, right? And the culture is there. I mean, it's how natural is it to be sitting in a Sunday school class and everybody is brother and sister, but there's one person who nobody really remembers, but their bishop or their president, right? Mm-hmm. And those are just subtle cues that we continue to send saying there's something different about you as opposed to the, the way I see the doctrines, which are you get keys or you get delegated authority for a season and you lead through the spirit of Christ. And when that mantle is gone, right? I think Elder Iron gave a talk about this. When the mantle is gone, it's gone, mm-hmm. right? And now you become one of the people. That's actually this, the beautiful simplicity that exists in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that you can find in almost no other organization. Yeah. This doctrine that you can have a high calling, you can be the top of the hierarchy, and the next day, you can just be one of the masses. Yeah. And I think it's uh, the point that you're making here, If I'm correct me if I'm wrong, is that when when this psyche exists, and it, again, it exists in all of us, it is holding you back from transformational leadership, just like that youth calling experience where now there's two, there needs to be two adults in the room. Well, that dynamic is necessary and we see the reasons for it, but it's important for you to sit down and realize that dynamic is changing how you're leading or how you are influencing the youth in that class because you are constantly aware or constantly worrying about what that other adult is is thinking of. Even if you don't think you are, you probably are to some extent, right? Yeah. So, so Robert Quinn, Bob Quinn, who's, who's my mentor, and he's a, a emeritus professor at the University of Michigan. You know, he, he wrote an article, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, where he outlined the four strategies to making change. Okay. And this is based off of his research and his you know review of the literature and so forth. And there's four strategies and they kind of go in order from easiest to hardest. And also from, you know, small outcomes to big outcomes. Mm-hmm. The first one is telling, right? I want you to change and I'm going to tell you to change. You know, if you smoke and I don't like it, I'm going to tell you, hey, you need to stop smoking, right? It's not very effective because most people already know at some level that they need to change and telling them that it's not going to help. Right. And to right. give another anecdote of uh, how this happens is that in a ward, you, you see a bishopric sees a problem. Hey, let's counsel on this. This needs to change. Hey, what we're going to do is have a fifth Sunday lesson about this. I'm going to tell help. the congregation, hey, this needs to change. Just so you know, here's a bunch of scriptures and quotes of why it needs to change. So now go change. That's telling leadership, right? Right. So I'll give you, I just want to give you an example on that. Yeah. So several years ago, we were visiting an award. There was a fifth Sunday lesson. The bishop came in and he gave a very passionate, authentic appeal about the you know sexual 
immorality, the transgressions that were happening amongst the youth of the ward. And his whole premise was, parents, you don't know what's going on in your kids' lives. And I can't tell you details and specifics, but they're telling me more than they're telling you. And so I want you to assume if your child has told you anything, it's the tip of the iceberg and there is more and you need to keep asking questions. It was a phenomenal telling of what to do. After that experience, as we walked out and talked to some of the people that we were with who had youth in that ward, their first response was, well, I'm so glad that's not happening to my child, right? And so they were told to go explore and to go ask questions. But because of that psychological mechanism, that Mm -hmm. ego, right? Mm -hmm. They instantly dismissed it and said, not me. It's somebody else. It's somebody else, Uh but it's not me, right? Yeah. Yeah. So telling, the second thing when telling doesn't work is we move towards forcing, okay? And this is where we want to, we, you know, we can use physical force. I'm going to, you know, with a child, you might say, you know, come to your room and grab their arm. And or you're going to them. church. Or, I, or you're going to church. Drag them out of the car. <laughs> or we might simply say, you can't get your driver's license until you earn your Eagle Scout award, mm-hmm. right? That's coercion. That's forcing, right? I'm going to get you to do what I want you to do, not because you believe it's the right thing or you want to do it, but because you are afraid of the punishments or because you want the rewards that I will offer, right? So. The other thing we often do is we talk a lot about accountability in organizations. We're going to hold the people accountable. And this has definitely become a conversation in the church, local leadership over the past decade. Mm-hmm. We've got to hold the people accountable, right? We've got to have transparency of our goals. We've got to remind them they haven't hit the goals, right? Well, what we're really doing there is we're saying, we're going to watch you closely, okay? So in economics, we talk about what's called the principal agent problem. And in this, the principal is the person in charge or the person who's the boss or the parent or the the, the bishop or the Relief Society president or whatever, right? They're the person in charge. They have a vision. They want things done, right? The agent is the employee, the child, the Relief Society instructor, the person who supposedly works for that boss, okay? The principal can't trust the agent to do the job the way the principal wants it done. And so because they're going to be leaving, they're not going to be there all the time to watch this person. They set up systems of rewards, systems of punishments, Okay. Ways to track, ways to scrutinize, right? Because what we want to do is we want to ensure that you will do what I ask you to do. Problem with that in the gospel context is we were created to be agents, not objects. Second Nephi 2.14. There you go. Thank you. (laughs) Elder Bednar's favorite scripture, I I always call it. Yeah. So when we engage in that kind of leadership, we're reducing the people to objects. We're removing their right of choice, right? We're saying you have to do this because I want you to do it, right? And whether I physically force you or whether I just very subtly employ certain mechanisms to do that, you know, it's, it's the same outcome and the people always feel that. And what that does is it pushes them away from us. Okay. It, it destroys the relationship. It erodes the, the relationship interaction by interaction. Right. And so in this article that I wrote on your blog, we're talking about how to design a perfect war. And I kind of reduced it to this concept of building perfect relationships, which was introduced by, you know, a woman that spoke in our sacrament meeting. And I've had a couple of people say to me, you know, I really like the article, but that concept's just a little bit too naive, right? Mm -hmm. We want to get things done. We have to be a ward that performs. There are tasks that have to be completed in order to function, right? And if it's all- We're losing souls, Dan, right? right? We got to get to the temple. I mean, this will be held over our head if we don't act, if we don't coerce this into existence. And nobody would ever say, I'm coercing this person. Right. I I do it all the time, but I would never say I am, right? right? Because- I have a positive self-regard. And you have good, very up. good intentions. That's right. Right. You're not some, you know, tyrant that uh, has a, that's forcing their plan on people, but in a way, sure you are. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So to say you can transform a ward or a family 
by focusing on building relationships, I'm talking about going to a different change strategy. So it's telling, it's mm-hmm. forcing. Next up, there's this one called participating, which is basically negotiating, right? It's, it's a, let's find a win-win situation. I still retain control in that situation of some, at some level, right? I'm not willing to lose something. So I'm going to go negotiate with you. I'm going to prioritize and I'm going to come from a, a perspective of self-interest. I need to get what I think is important, even though I recognize you need to get what's important to you. Vastly better than telling or forcing, but there's a fourth way. And this is what- Before we move on, like, what's an example of, of that uh, as far as participatory uh, leadership? Like, What does that look like in, in real life or maybe an award setting or something like that? Well, for example, if I, if I feel like you need to be at a meeting that you don't want to be at, right? I might sit down with you and say, you know, let's, let's talk about the value of this meeting and what you're going to get out of this meeting and why I need you to be at this meeting. So, so I'll give you my perspective because for some reason, it's important to me that I have you at this meeting, right? But then you're going to say, well, let me tell you about my perspective and I'm going to value that perspective. So it's better than telling. Mm-hmm. I say, okay, I understand you've got family in town or you don't see the importance of this or you're not bought in, whatever. And then you, you just kind of work it back and forth. And that in and of itself is a very positive, productive thing. It's just limited. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because everything's transactional or a negotiation of, and I think a lot of parents fall in this with teenagers, right? Like it's always this, okay, I need to get this, this, my child on a mission someday. So let's negotiate about seminary. Okay. What do you don't, what don't you like about seminary? Right. And you're being this very open and listening parent. And it feels like, you know, I'm on the right track and it's not a bad track. I think you're, you're emphasizing, but it, there's a higher way. There is a higher way. And it's the way that the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us. Right? Mm-hmm. So in the research, we call it transformational leadership. And in transformational leadership, the big difference is you're letting go of control of the outcomes. That's scary, Dan. It's very scary <laughs> because now all of a sudden I may not get things done that I want to get done or that the organization, I think the organization needs to get done. And we may not look good in the process, right? Because when I let go of control and I say, I'm going to let you do what you are going to do. And I'm going to focus instead on building a relationship with you. Okay. And I'm going to trust that that relationship will be so powerful that it will draw you into me and will open you to my influence. I'll be able to set vision. I'll be able to set high performance standards. And instead of those pushing you away, that will actually draw you in. Okay. Yeah. So an example of that, that I talked about in this article, I'll just reference is a friend of mine said, you know, he's a, he's a bishopric member in a millennial ward dominated by millennials. The bishoprics all millennials. And it's just fascinating to me to hear a millennial complaining about millennials, right? Because right. when I work with organizations all over the country and the world, that's what they're complaining about uh-huh. for the most part, because the leadership is usually a boomer, baby boomer level. How do we deal with these, these millennials? They don't want you know, responsibility, but they want all of the power and the privilege and they want to move up the tracks. You know, they've all, they're all talking about the same thing, right? So he's saying to me, we are so frustrated by the fact that millennials in our ward won't take responsibility on. And when they do, they don't do things the way we want them to do it. Okay. So this particular example was the gentleman called to be the custodian in the ward, right? The ward cleaning specialist, mm-hmm. whatever it's called. And the, the custodian cleans the building every week by himself. Okay. The last two custodians clean the building every week by themselves. And my friend is saying, this is so maddening. I keep telling him to invite the ward to do this with him, right? But he won't listen to me. He just takes the easy way out. And I'm so frustrated. How do I get him to do what I want him to do? Now, let me just okay. let me just call a time out here. This is, if there's any question or concern leaders have, especially in, because you are leading a volunteer organization that they go to work and they have, you know, salaries and 
and different leverage points. And then they go to church and they everybody's a volunteer. You don't, you don't want to scare anybody out. And so the question comes down to, help me. How can I get this person to do what I want them to do? Right. Right. So when you ask that question, though, that's that's a normal question to yeah. ask. There's nothing right. wrong with that question. It's not like, yeah, right. But it's in, it's embedded with so many assumptions yeah. which are defeating. It's counterproductive to what we're actually trying to accomplish. So true. So true. So, I mean, for example, one of the assumptions is the completion of this task is the preeminent goal, right? Getting the building cleaned matters more than anything else in our relationship. When you get to that level with a person, whether it's your kid or someone at church or your employee, when they feel like the task is more important than they are or the relationship is, you've dug a big hole mm-hmm. already because people feel that and they respond to that. You know, the second assumption that's embedded, embedded in there is that, you know, not only is this a preeminent goal, that there's one right way to complete the task and that my way is the right way, right? And this is something in the church, this is where micromanagement behavior comes, comes from in any organization. But in the church, you know, it's this idea that there's one right way to do this. Okay. And we don't give the tolerance for people to experiment or explore with other ways. And we start to pull in, you know, subtle references to doctrine or to authority or to keys or to hierarchy. Right. And we kind of shut people down and they end up repeating exactly the same things over and over again. Yeah. Okay. So as we toured the U S in our travel trailer, we probably went to 30 or 40 different wards and branches. At first, you have that euphoric feeling of like, this is so cool. The church is the same everywhere. And it's kind of like this celebratory thing, right? Let me tell you, after about the fifth or sixth one, you start to go, I think we have a problem. <laughs> You're like, oh no, the church is <laughs> the same the everywhere. Because the church's local culture is the same everywhere. The same talks are given, the same interactions are had. Like all of a sudden, you, your eyes open, you go, wow. This culture is really strong and pervasive throughout all of these words and branches. Okay. And we even spent some time overseas and saw a lot of the similar experiences over there. And so my way is the right way. And by the way, if you don't like my way or if you don't do it my way, you must be lazy. You must be ignorant or you lack must faith. be defiant. Mm-hmm. Maybe you lack faith. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so because of that, you know, we think it's hierarchical. We're on top. It's our duty and responsibility to fix you. And so all of a sudden people become problems. Mm-hmm. Right. You're a lazy person, even though you're probably not lazy. And if I were to look at your life in general, there's times where you exhibit a lot of energy, right? Or the person becomes ignorant, right? So now I just have to educate this person. I have to have the fifth Sunday lesson or I have to, you know, whatever. Or third one is I think you're willfully disobedient, Mm. right? And we may not say those words, but- And we need to meet, right? right? (laughs) That goes back to your article. right? So anyway- these are the assumptions that are embedded in that question. And so going back to the custodian, right? If those are your assumptions, your, your leadership options are limited. There's only so much you can do. But when we study transformational leaders, what we find is that they have different options. They have an arsenal of tools that normal leaders don't have. They, the normal leaders can't even see that those tools exist, right? So in the article, I said, what would happen if instead of focusing on cleaning the building, the bishopric member focused on building a perfect relationship with the custodian? And trusted that when that custodian was in trouble or needed help, he would come to the bishopric member. Well, how do you do that? Right? You have to spend time with the people. And in the meantime, the bathrooms sure are dirty and that's okay. And the bathrooms might be dirty and it's okay. Right. Right. That's where you're letting go of control. You let go of control. I have no control how the bathroom looks this week. That's right. I'm building this relationship. And in the meantime, I might have this glorious vision of this kumbaya experience on Saturday mornings where the whole ward descends upon the church building and it gets cleaned together. Right. But I can never get to that 
euphoric experience with the community until I learned to get to that euphoric experience with the one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now bring in Elder Bednar and he's writing passionately. I mean, his book one by one oh, is, is an amazing, yeah. you know, articulation of the ministry doctrine of Jesus Christ. Right. So if I were to say to you as a bishop, remember, you ought to go clean the building side by side with that person and put yourself below him. Take orders, take instructions. Don't give any counsel. Don't tell him how to do the job. Just do whatever he asks you to do. And maybe, you know, do a little bit more, but don't do it from a, a hierarchical perspective, right? The first pushback I would get is, but I'm a bishopric member. I'm busy. I have way too much going on to go do other people's callings for them. Okay. Again, that's in the task management, task production paradigm. Mm-hmm. It's all about getting the job done. You're not there to clean the building. You are there to minister, right? And you cannot minister to an individual until he knows that you love him, mm-hmm. right? And how do you show him that you love him? You don't tell him. You don't coerce him. You don't even negotiate with him. You transform the relationship. And the hierarchical status of the relationship is how you, you re- removing that is how you transform it. You make yourself lower than the custodian, okay? You may not have to do this every week for the next six months, but you do this every week for the next couple of weeks. And what will change in that relationship? right? Yeah. All of a sudden, this becomes a human being, child of God. You know his story. You know why much more clearly why he's choosing to clean the building by himself instead of reaching out to others, right? And then at some level, he will be drawn to you. You will begin to raise performance expectations. And instead of that pushing him away, it will draw him even closer to you. Mm -hmm. That's transformational leadership in a very sort of mundane, you know, church leadership setting. Yeah. And I would guess... Like, I'm just thinking about the, you know, and, and my mind goes to this, but the, the leader that's listening to this and the, you try and play both sides of that, of that dynamic of task oriented and the one-to-one, because I think all leaders, if you were to ask any leader in the church, do you want to have strong, great relationships, one-to-one ministering Christ-like relationships with people in their board? They'd be like, yeah, absolutely. And there may be bishop listening saying, listen, Dan, like this is cute discussion and everything, but I'm dealing with three drug addicts four marriages that are falling apart. Like I'm trying to have this one-to-one interaction with the uh, members walking into my office. I just need the building cleaned, right? And so then they, though they're having that one-to-one experience in other realms with other people, you you quickly switch into the task-oriented leader because, listen, I just need this done because I'm doing some great one-on-one ministering over here and I need the building clean, right? But that's where you, what you're saying, if I'm understanding right, is you let go of the ward being clean, of the chapel being clean and know that they're doing their best. And maybe maybe you aren't ministering to that uh, janitor, but you're ministering to other people while the building's a little bit dirty and that's okay. Right. I mean, and it goes back to the perception of, or our thoughts of how people perceive us, right? Yeah. How do we look in our callings? So that same ward- Because the stake president's coming on Sunday. Well, yeah. even worse. And that with same white ward, the same stake. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you are a, a ward and a stake filled with millennials- married millennials who have young children, your building is dirtier than normal. Mm -hmm. You got Cheerios everywhere. You got diapers in the garbage cans, right? So it's not an inconsequential thing having a clean building, right? Mm -hmm. When one of the general authorities, in fact, it was one of the members of the 12 was coming to visit their stake, right? The stake presidency and the bishoprics went and cleaned the building. Took them hours the night before, right? On the surface of that, that sounds like kind of this heroic gesture, right? We're going to go clean the building because you know we don't want to burden anyone else. But really, when you talk to them, it's because people who clean the building aren't doing their job. Mm-hmm. And we don't believe the building is up to par. And what we don't want to have happen is an apostle to walk into our building and say, 
why is this building not clean? Right. Because then that reflects on our ego. Right. So what's the cost of having a stake presidency in a bishopric up all night cleaning a building the night before an apostle is coming to their stake? First of all, they're going to be tired. They're going to be exhausted. They're not going to be, they're not fasting and in prayer. You know, this is Martha work. This isn't Mary work sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. They're not in that transformational mindset. They're far from that. Right? Exactly. And what else did they miss the opportunity to do to prepare their families for that visit, to listen to the spirit and go prepare other individuals one by one to be ready for that visit? There's a whole myriad of things that could have happened mm. in that time frame, right? But our priority was, is the building clean, right? The building probably should be clean before an apostle comes. But can you trust, have you built relationships with the custodians of the stake? Have you built those kind of relationships that you can trust that when you need them to deliver, that they will deliver? And if they can't deliver, they will come to you and say, I can't deliver, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's just, an, it's a, to me, it's an expose that we don't have the relationships in place that we can rely on. Yeah. Because it's a long game, right? It's not that you are conceding the fact that your church building will always be messy, but you're creating these relationships and creating a culture that right. in the long run, the church will be clean right. because you've created a culture that takes care of those things. And that's the irony that we find with transformational leaders is it's always sausage making in the process. It always looks difficult and it's going to struggle and it's going to fail. And there are plenty of naysayers who are going to shout it down, right? But when they persevere with purpose, right? When they hold strong, they end up delivering transformational results, yeah. right? They exceed the normal expectations and people stand back and go, oh my goodness, there is something different going on here. I wrote about that in the article, the Michigan City branch that we attended. As strangers, even walking up to the building, we could feel the power of God pulsing off of that edifice, mm -hmm. right? We knew something transformational was about to happen to us, and it did. We were only there for a couple of hours on a Sunday, but we didn't want to leave because something was going on between those people, and it was drawing us in, yeah. right? And a lot of time we want to see that word, and you know, I'm the you know, with the podcast, I'm always trying to find these words that are doing unique things. We want to like pinpoint it. Oh, they do this program where they have five youth shaking hands out in front. And then it's not about the program that they've done or the, the way that they do things day to day, but it's the culture that's been established through this transformational habits, right? And that culture comes in those very small, subtle moments. The yeah. people, the collective memory, they remember how to engage with each other to stay psychologically safe, right? And physically safe and all those other things. So I really liked your example. You wrote in your blog this past week, I believe it was. Well, it's a, it's a newsletter. So newsletter. only individuals who are subscribed to the newsletter, which you can do at leadingsaints.org slash subscribe, will actually get this. So this is content that doesn't land always on the website. Okay. Well, I think it would be useful if you're willing to yeah. make that sure. content public. Would you just yeah. describe the example, you know, the, the, the point about, you know, how we engage with people in coming to the bishop's office and then the example that you gave of how it might be done right? Yeah. So... I guess this article uh, comes from uh, this dynamic, you know, serving in, in leadership callings for 10 years, I was in a bishop in a stake presidency where I would set, or my executive secretary would set appointments all the time with people of, hey, we're going to extend this calling, call Sister Jones in and we'll do it. From my side of the table, that seems very harmless. You know, just, I just need to extend a calling, call her in. I learned later when I'm outside of leadership callings, a phone call from a leader saying, Bishop Frankham would like to speak with you has a whole different feel to it. Like, he wants to speak to me. Is it calling? Or I did say that thing in Sunday school. Maybe maybe he's mad about that. Right? So, it's just completely a different dynamic. To me, it seems innocent. To the person coming in, it doesn't. So, I think it's helpful for a leader to be aware of this. And so, in this article, I, you know, speak to the fact that we as leaders need to be aware of what 
the how we do things very innocently day to day can be perceived the other the other person. And once you're aware of it, then maybe you can approach it differently. So a lot of time you can be called in from by the state presidency and you hear it all the time, like, okay, the second I'm gonna meet with a second counselor, he's over primary. And so that means I could be a a teacher or maybe the song leader. I don't know, right? And so we try and uh, guess what it is. But my point being is that that, and especially if you are bringing somebody in to maybe quote unquote correct them or discuss a concern that you have about them, that can be a very shaming experience. And so I propose the, I give one example of, let's say you are calling a new Relief Society president. Well, you uh, obviously as a bishopric come to that prayerfully, you post some names, okay, um, you get a name. Well, now we need to call that individual in. And so the executive secretary calls that person as them come in. Well, who knows? And you may call them on a on a Sunday, on a Saturday and say, the bishop would like to meet you on Tuesday. Well, those next few days, that may be a lot that they think about and it may be distracting at work. I mean, that can be a very, a very difficult thing to process as you're waiting. What is this about? And then they get in there and simply that calling. Now it's maybe a heavier calling and, and whatnot. But so I propose, what if you instead told that person over the phone, you as the bishop called Sister Jones and say, Sister Jones, do you have a few minutes? I just want to have a, a just a brief phone call with you. And right, you don't have to make it quick just because it's on the phone. And through that, just say, now we've strongly felt a, uh, guided to your name as far as being the next Relief Society president. Would you mind coming in on Tuesday? Between now and then, preferably think over this, maybe attend the temple. Come in on Tuesday and I just let's just talk about it further. See if it see if it's a, a good fit for all things considered, right? Now that Relief Society president has a whole different experience, a very spiritual experience between that Saturday and Tuesday where that church, she's maybe looking around thinking, wow, you know, asking her, her maker, can I really lead these women? Wow, you know, I don't know if I can do it. And now he, she's opening her heart to that and then the Lord can speak to her, I believe in you. I think you got what it takes, right? Or then she goes to the, the temple on that Tuesday morning before the lesson. Now she's having a spiritual experience there. Then the moment comes when she walks in that office, it's a completely different meeting where she is spiritually prepared herself that she can talk about it, right? Now, that's just an example of calling. It could be a variety of, of things. If maybe you do have a concern with that, that member, you know, maybe talk to him about it briefly over the phone or, or some way in the hall or pull him in on Sunday and just, just have that conversation and then invite them to, to go over that, right? So, this is, that's the dynamic I was talking about as far as we, we tend to, we have this culture of, I make a call because I'm the leader, you come in, we talk, and then I propose something that you probably shouldn't say no to, right? Does that give you good, yeah, a good foundation? Yeah, so, so even hearing that story again, I love it. As I was reading the newsletter the first time and, and I was getting curious, like, what is, what's the outcome? Where's Kurt going with this? <laughs> and then you gave that example. I mean, I just I lit up because what you were describing was a transformational leadership experience. First of all, it defies the current culture. So, mm -hmm. it would be hard and difficult and set you up for some criticisms from that perspective. But in addition, it's letting go of control, right? It's letting go of the power that I have over you, right? So as a bishop or an executive secretary, it's understood that when the bishop asks you to come to his office, no is not an option, right? right? And in fact, the executive secretary or the counselor, whoever's making that appointment, it never even really crosses their mind that this person might say no. They might say, I'm busy. Can we do it a different night? Right. But if someone were to just flat out say, no, not interested, Thanks. Thanks for calling, right? That would blow our minds. Like, what do I do with that? Right? Culture doesn't allow that, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're leveraging that status, that hierarchy, that position. And in that context, I had this uh, epiphany or this moment. 
I was taking the new the church's new youth protection training, which I highly recommend for everyone. You're the young man's president, right? correct? So. Right. So it's it's very well done. It's uh, very tasteful. It's very thorough. Um, the policies are are very helpful. They get into a list of behaviors in addition to abuse, right? Physical, uh, emotional abuse, uh, sexual abuse. But there's some other behaviors that they list out and they define as harmful, negative behaviors. And they define grooming, they define discipline, they define harassment and bullying, all very sort of negative words, right? Negative connotation. But there's one more in the list called coercion. And my lights immediately went on because coercion is the normal leadership MO in every organization in the world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Is to is to try to force people to do things you want them to do. And so I, this definition is just very enlightening. Coercion can occur when a leader, and this is about children, so it says when a leader compels a child using religious language or authority to imply a spiritual obligation or duty, permission, sanction, punishment, justification, intimidation, or threat. Okay. Wow. So it's saying if you're trying to get a child to do something they don't want to do using your position as a young men's advisor or a young women's advisor or a bishop or whatever, right? That's coercion. And then it goes on to say, this is contrary to the Savior's teaching that individuals should lead only by persuasion, by long suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. So we're talking about the research here about four strategies of making change, right? Mm -hmm. But Jesus Christ defined this. He defined it in the Doctrine and Covenants. He defined it in the Bible, right? He lived it. Transforming relationships through love unfeigned, through persuasion, through meekness. The Savior never compelled anyone to, to follow him. He just simply said, Come follow me. Yeah. Right? And he left it in their court. And he let his works stand for themselves. He let the Holy Spirit testify as it needs to testify, right? And he trusted in the foreordination of the individuals that they would respond and that they would come forward. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the Relief Society president example and the extending of the calling. I love the idea. I love the idea of saying, you know what, I'm going to let go of the fact that I'm the bishop and, and I have the rights to revelation for who gets to be the next Relief Society president. I'm actually not going to hold that over your head. I'm going to trust in the personal line of revelation to confirm this priesthood line of revelation. And I'm going to give you the full respect and opportunity to receive that revelation. Okay. I can tell you, I've been in experiences in the church where I was given three or four weeks, right? Because I hadn't received that personal line of revelation. And I've watched other people be given that time. And when the priesthood line and the personal line come together, that's Elder Oaks' teaching. It's powerful. Right. Yeah. But when people accept the calling just because they feel like they have to, okay, now we have all kinds of additional issues that we deal with, yeah. residual issues down the road. And they may serve and they may serve pretty well, but that dynamic impacts the overall culture. Exactly. And if you don't get the culture right, it's not going to work. I mean, you will not, it will never change people. I'll give you an example from my own history where I wish I had done something differently. I was a counselor and a bishopric in a BYU married ward. We had a great bishop, older gentleman, just the nicest guy in the world. I love that guy. And I was responsible for working with the Relief Society. And so the counselor in the Relief Society brings forward a name that she has prayed about, the presidency has prayed about, and they believe this is the next Relief Society instructor with great passion. And I do my duty, take it to bishop meeting, and I say, here's the name. And the bishop says, it's not her. So I go back. Mm -hmm. and I said, it's not her. Very typical uh, Very exchange, typical huh? exchange, right? Well, this happens seven times. Seven times. She's on her knees. She's at the temple. She's in deep reflection, coming back to me and saying, this is the one. And I'm going back to her saying, not the one for a variety of reasons, right? There's information she doesn't have about their 
worthiness or about their marriage relationship or about, you know, plans that the bishop has for them or whatever, right? Um, what I wish I had done differently, instead of just playing the hierarchical game of passing information back and forth, is I wish I would have gone and sat down with her in an appropriate setting and said, why don't we do this together? Because two or three times into this, this isn't working. Now, I remember as a, as a young priest uh, with responsibilities to bless the sacrament, there was a priest in our ward who had a speech impediment, had a very low self-esteem. Um, it's always interesting to watch how bishops respond when a priest mumbles or, or you know, garbles the sacrament meeting prayer, mm -hmm. right? And there are some who are very, you know, doctrinaire. It's got to be exactly right. And there are others who let some things slide. And I've always just kind of watched with curiosity. That's a leadership play mm -hmm. in front of the whole congregation. It affects a very, you know, fragile individual who's up there doing something that they probably don't want to be doing. Well, I remember this individual st stumbling over the prayer and the bishop said to do it over again. And he did it the second time and it was worse. Okay. So now you're in a conundrum, right? Because it's, it's only going to go downhill from here. And as a young 17 or 18 year old, I watched with curiosity, what is the bishop going to do here? And he did exactly what I think Jesus Christ would have done. He stood up and he walked over and he knelt down and he put his arm around that young man who was probably in tears at that point. And if I recall right, the bishop gave the prayer with his arm around that boy. Mm. Okay. Now, what does that communicate to a body of saints? Right? That's transformational leadership. That's a willingness to break the patterns and paradigms to say, yeah, there's a performance expectation. We've been told that it's important to Jesus Christ to say these words right. But it's also important to Jesus Christ not to humiliate people, yeah. right? Not to uh, coerce people and so forth. So how do you how do you lead like that in these small and simple settings? And then that builds the culture that your members will now respond to. Yeah. A lot of people, they hear this and, and they're thinking, okay, I get, I, I understand the concepts a little bit better. And like, oh yeah, I, here's one or two situations I probably didn't handle very well. Or yeah, I just called the scout leader and harped on him for not uh, doing this task right. Um, then the question is, okay, how do I, how do I even begin this journey? And if, if I'm understanding you right, and this is sort of becoming your, your calling card is it begins with that positive deviance. Is that, is that a tactic to break us out of that? Or, or how, how would you respond to that as far as, okay, Dan, like I get it, but where do I even begin to, to shift this culture? Because the culture can be so strong that it's a force that is hard to, to push against. Right. Where do you begin when you're trying to make leadership change? So you recognize that there are normal behaviors. Uh, leadership behaviors that the culture reinforces, general culture and then organization specific to each ward, specific to the church in general. But you also recognize that within every organizational system, right? So across all the wards and branches, we'll just say in the you know, United States and Canada, where it's culturally similar, there are some wards who fail to meet those expectations performance-wise. Most wards meet them, right? But there are some wards who exceed those expectations. They deliver outcomes and experiences that are phenomenal. And when we experience those, we know it. Mm -hmm. Okay. When I was in Michigan City, I didn't have to tell my kids they were experiencing a positively deviant branch or ward. There's a branch, but it had over 100 people in it, probably 150 people in it. I didn't have to tell them they were experiencing that. They knew it. Mm -hmm. Right. When we said as a family, how was church today? It wasn't, I'm oh, fine. Good. What'd you learn? You know, it was, whoa, primary was awesome. I felt so welcomed there. 
I really want to live here. I want to be one of the young women in this ward, right? And I'm sitting there going, man, that's what I experienced in then the high priest group, right? In Elders Quorum. And my wife's saying that's what she experienced in the Relief Society. We know when we see excellence because it's not normal. By definition, yeah. it is positively deviant, which means it's deviant from the norm in a positive direction, right? Yeah. And that's what I was going to have you define what exactly positive deviance is. Because when you hear deviance, it's like, especially the nice guy syndrome, like, no, 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 I'm not deviant. I'm a good boy. Yeah. I follow the rules. I always follow the handbook to a T and or I follow the sacrament prayer to a T because, you know, it's part of our, our ego, right? Right. Well, and, and I love the term positive deviance. It's mm -hmm. kind of, I've latched onto it. And when I got into this teaching practice with, you know, Sean and Bob Quinn, that's one of the calling cards that I said, this is me because it speaks to me. And I'm going to teach this very boldly because- there are some people who say, no, this is about positive leadership. This is about being a nice person at work and nice people can win. And I say, no, that's not what this is about. This is about breaking norms and patterns that are reinforcing mediocrity, that are reinforcing the norm, right? And it's about working our way towards norms and patterns that will produce excellence. Most of the time, that means being the nice person, right? But sometimes when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, you got to speak with sharpness. And you got to let the people know that you expect more out of them, right? Mm -hmm. So in the church context, it isn't always touchy-feely. It isn't always, you know, unicorns and butterflies, yeah. right? There is a performance standard. And particularly, it's not the performance standard relative to how clean the building is or how excellent your lesson is. It's the performance standard relative to the covenant path that President Nelson is talking about, right? Mm -hmm. It's fairly clear. It's fairly black and white. And you're either on it or you're not. And you're either moving forward or you're not, right? And we can set that expectation for people and they can still love us and they can still be drawn to us. Okay. So Bob Quinn talks a lot about, you know, when he did his research, he found that some research said transformational leaders, positively deviant leaders are all about task. They're clear. They set expectations, smart goals. Everybody understands communication. Right. And then there's this other group of researchers out there that say, no, it's all about, you know, positive psychology and relationships and, you know, doing the right thing and, you know, and making sure people know that you love them and you care for them, right? But when he looked at transformational leaders, it was both. Mm -hmm. It wasn't one or the other. It was high on task and high on people. The transformational leaders have figured out how to do these two things, which seem like they're opposites. It seems like they move yeah. in different directions, right? Yeah. If you're going to set expectations for your child, it's going to be difficult and they're not going to feel loved, right? Or if you're going to love your child, they're going to think, hey, mom doesn't care what I do anymore, Right. But the transformational parents, the transformational leaders, they can do both, right? And so when we talk about positive deviance, think of a bell curve, mm -hmm. right? Most of us are in the norm and this is a state of being. This isn't, I am always awesome or I'm always mediocre or I'm always, you know, uh, failing. This is sometimes I am awesome. Most of the time I'm normal. Sometimes I fail, right? And that's true of my work in what I do, your work in what you do. It's true of our roles as parents or as bishops or as Relief Society presidents or as uh, Sunday school instructors, right? Most of the time, we're just normal, normal relative to the culture, normal relative to our own standards, to our own you know, history. Right? Yeah. Sometimes we are positively deviant. We break outside to that right-hand side of the bell curve and we produce excellence, excellence relative to what everybody else is doing, but most importantly, excellence relative to what we are capable of. We're at our best. We're at our peak, right? Peak performance is another way to talk about it, right? Yeah. So what we're focused on in the work that we do is how do we help leaders and organizations become excellent, become positively deviant? Yeah. And that's, this is something that 
you know, deviance, there, there's sort of this uh, feeling of I got to, you know, that means I need to break some rules. And we're not saying you break handbook rules or you break commandments, but what we're saying is you break cultural rules. That's when you enter the, the arena of positive deviance. Which is why I loved your Relief Society extending the call to the president example, yeah. because that's breaking the rules. Right. There is a That's not how it's done, Kurt. Says right? You extend a calling this way, uh-huh. right? And then there's confidentiality and the, certainly executive secretaries should never let on why they're coming, right? And say, well, I, you know, those are the, the cultural rules. And you even cite the handbook instruction that's the policy that says extend callings in a formal, dignified manner. Mm-hmm. But we have layered upon that certain expectations of how that's supposed to look. And when you violate that, you get pushback. You get people that say that's not appropriate. Right. And I got those emails from individuals who, and bless their hearts, they had good intentions. And and I appreciate it. I love when people respond to me and disagree with me because I could be wrong uh, in many things that I say. And I appreciate that discussion because I learned from that discussion. But many individuals said, you know, I, I get what you're saying, Kurt, but I just don't think it's appropriate to extend callings over the phone. And I said, I understand, even though the First Presidency extends the call of mission president to uh, hundreds of people every year over the phone. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, I'm like, okay, I, under, I understand that, that, that you're not there. But I'm just saying that, I'm not saying that you're crazy if you don't start doing this way. But what I'm doing is I'm pinpointing a place where we could create some positive deviance that's going to create higher culture and more productive culture in the wrong, long run. There's other ways to do this calling dynamic or to respond to uh, the situation that may still be positive deviance it doesn't have to be this way. But the point being is pushing yourself to say, how else could this be done so that we take our culture to a higher level? And I'm not going to weigh in and say that the way you've described in that newsletter is the right way. Mm-hmm. Okay. What I'm celebrating is that it's a different way, right. that it's deliberately breaking the norms with the intention of creating a better outcome. So that's what's key. If you just break the norms to break the norms, you're just a rogue, right. you're just a maverick, you know? <laughs> yeah. But if you're breaking the rules with the intention of delivering better outcomes, and now you are engaged in a strategy to be positively deviant, right? right? So how do you as a leader become positively deviant? You experiment. Yeah. Okay. You listen to those subtle promptings. I call them I shoulds, right? I should do this differently. I should do that differently. You listen to those. You turn them into experiment. I, I really should extend this calling differently this time and see if I get a different outcome. And so then you craft it like you did into a story. You craft it into a very specific scenario. I'm going to do it like this. Here's what I think the outcome will be, right? Then you go through this experience and you reflect on it after the fact and you say, what was I hoping to learn? Did I learn it? Did I learn something different? Mm-hmm. Would I do that again? Or how would I adjust this and do this differently? And what happens is over time, as you experiment and you reflect and you continue to learn what we call authentic leadership development, that cycle, mm-hmm. as you learn, experiment, and reflect, you start to develop new modes of behavior, new patterns that are reinforced by the data in your own life. So this is never, ever about copying somebody else. You do not go look at Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or whoever you think is the, the world's best leader. You don't go study them and say, how do I be like them? Yeah. What you do is you look at them as positive deviants and you say, how do they inspire me to become the best version of myself as a leader or as a parent? And then how do I begin to experiment my way into becoming that best self, right? And it's through that continual process, you're rewriting the mental scripts, the psychological programs in your head that tell you how to respond in difficult situations because you're actually not thinking about them in those situations, you're just defaulting. But you can rewrite those defaults, mm-hmm. and pretty soon you have permanently upgraded your leadership performance. Yeah, 
I love that term of rewriting the defaults because again, I want to be very clear before I get a bunch of emails. We're not saying break the rules in the handbook. We're saying break the rules in the culture. That is what positive deviance is. And so culture, the rules in our culture are our defaults that we're not sure where they came from. And oftentimes you may do something a certain way and nobody asks, is that in the handbook? And so maybe ask that question yourself more and more. Is that in the handbook? What does the handbook say? Let's go there, right? Oh, wow. There's all sorts of wiggle room here. We don't have to do it this way, right? And that's the beauty of the handbooks is more often than not, you, you find out, wow, there's a lot of ways we could go about this, right? And then you rewrite that cultural default and that's when progress takes place. I really liked listening to one of the episodes, I forgot who it was, on your uh, virtual summit on helping people with pornography addiction. Mm-hmm. And he lives in Idaho and he referenced- Jason Coombs, huh? Okay. So there it is. He referenced you know, up in their stake- the church's self-reliance initiative, which has four classes or four groups that are facilitated. Yeah. He referenced that their stake president had authorized them to create a fifth. What? Right. <laughs> and I just wondered how many people would hear that and say, oh, we're not supposed to do that. can't do that. Right. And maybe even, maybe the brethren will weigh in on that. And yeah, maybe he won't I'm not be trying to get anybody into right, it. Right. <laughs> uh, maybe he won't be able to. But what I loved is that you have a stake president and really I don't know if it was his idea or if it was people in his stake. And so he's listening to the people in his stake mm-hmm. who are saying, we want to be positively deviant in how we deal with this pornography problem. And the church has come up with a pretty interesting structure, these self-reliance facilitated groups. It's pretty interesting. And when it works right, pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. What if we were to do one of those for pornography addiction? Now, what I can tell you is that that may just take off. And if they have good results, don't be surprised if in a year... Suddenly the church has five, mm-hmm. right? That's and where the primary came from is a positive deviant that tell, started Tell it. me that story. Well, I don't have all the details, but uh, now you're putting me on the spot here. I'll, I'll look at the research and link to it. But somebody, a sister, decided to create an activity in, during the week for children and the church adopted it and now it's the primary. Okay. Same thing happened with the Boy Scouts of America. Uh-huh. There was a Young Men Mutual Improvement Association president who said, these boys need something to do. They need something productive. He learned about Boy Scouts, something happening back East, wasn't happening in the West. He, on his own cost, began to explore it, developed it, implemented it in his ward. And it was only a matter of a year or two before it became a church-wide adopted program. Now, thousands of Latter-day Saints curse his name. No. <laughs> well, hey, there, it, was, it was a good positive thing over. We can talk all about the <laughs> cultural implications of how scouting stopped delivering its value. Right. Another example. So in the Ann Arbor Stake, you get a stake Sunday school president who challenges a ward Sunday school president create excellence. Mm. I want you to create excellence. I don't know what that looks like, but there's hardly any excellent Sunday school programs in the church. And I want you to create it. He goes with his presidency, prays fast, works with the bishop, come up with this idea that we should, we need to get our teachers together routinely to work with each other, to talk about the, the challenges, to you know facilitate conversation and dialogue. It's not a training meeting. It's a teacher council meeting, right? Well, it's phenomenal. Yeah. It was awesome. It was delivering tremendous results. And less than a year later, it was adopted by the church, right? There's some connections to uh, the Sunday school presidency, right? The general Sunday school presidency right. that yeah. picked up on it. That's mm-hmm. right. And he was a, had a daughter that was a member in that ward. And so when he came to visit, you know, he saw this phenomenal thing and they began to explore it. Now there's, you know, we can talk about, I know a lot of people in the church don't love the teacher councils. Okay. So I'm not here saying the teacher council is 
you know, the one way to do it. The one way to do things. But that's right. an example of positive deviance. It's an example of positive deviance. And when you do it and it works, it gets noticed. People notice there's something different about this Sunday school here that's different than all the others or about this children's group here or this young men's group here. It gets noticed and people adopt it. But here's the key. In the process, it's messy. And you also don't know if the results are going to be what you say they're going to be or what yeah. you hope they're going to be. I'm so glad you mentioned that. That's, okay. that's key. Yeah. So why don't people break out of the norms and do things more positively deviant even when they want to? There's generally three reactions that you get in order to positively deviant behavior. The first is people kind of just rationalize you and they say, well, now the first one is they laugh at you and they say, oh, that's cute. Look what they're doing. That's kind of interesting. You know, the second thing is, is they rationalize your behavior. They say, well, there's a reason why that person can do it differently because they don't have this constraint that I have or something. The third one is they demonize you mm. and they start to say, you're a bad person. You're upsetting the status quo. You're making it difficult. Subconsciously, what's really happening is you might be demonstrating there's a more excellent way. And so to preserve their ego, they now have to come up with a story to tell themselves why they're not producing excellence. And so they begin to demonize the person who's excellent, right? Mm -hmm. Most people can't persevere through those three stages. Those are very difficult to deal with. If you have purpose, if you have drive, and you can persevere through all three of those, and your idea turns out to deliver the value that you thought it was going to deliver, then all of a sudden you get a rush of support and the people recognize this is awesome. It becomes mainstream. People want to adopt it everywhere, right? You've started a movement. But it's getting through those three stages that prevents most people from experimenting in the first place. Awesome. All right. Well, this is uh, going to have to be a, we're going to have to make this more regular that we have Dan Duckworth on the podcast for sure. So, last of all, I want to give you a chance to, uh, if people want to connect with you and, and an event you have coming up, and then, and then I have one more question. So, plug your stuff. What should the, the audience look forward to in, in Dan's world? Yeah. So I mentioned uh, Robert Quinn, Bob Quinn, a couple of times. He is a, truly a national thought leader in terms of leadership and organizations. Um, he's in the top 1% of the researchers who are cited in the field, the academic field, but he was also voted as one of the top speakers in the world. Wow. Um, so he's not just an academic, he's actually a master teacher. He's a transformational teacher. Yeah. And I'm bringing him to Utah, right? I was dealing with, uh, or not dealing with, but thinking through all of these things I've been learning about Utah and what I felt like I needed to do here, how to start a movement, how to bring deep change to the people. And you know that's an overwhelming mission. And I'm kind of by myself, although I'm meeting a lot of great people like yourselves and others who are inspired by a similar mission. And I found myself pondering this one day and I said to myself, Duckworth, you got to go big. What's the biggest you can go? And instantly it hit me, bring Bob Quinn to Utah for a public workshop. And for the people who don't live in the leadership development space, you just need to appreciate how rare of an opportunity this is. I mean, guys like Bob Quinn, Bob Quinn especially, he gets retained by Fortune 100 CEOs and executives. That's where he spends his time. And, and he might do a little bit here or there for their people, but they're not doing public enrollment workshops. When you, when you sign, you know, even when Stephen Covey was, was here, when you sign up for a Covey workshop, you're not sitting down with Stephen Covey. You're sitting down with, five or six or 10 layers deep, someone who's read the manual and who's going to regurgitate what they think you know Covey would say or do, right? Well, this is bringing in the guru straight to the masses. And so I'm super excited about that. I would love to have anybody who feels like they want to learn how to lead change, how to be positively deviant, to do it you know, you know, certainly in their families and in their church life, but also to do it in their business life, to deliver transformational experiences, change cultures, change strategies, 
right? To deliver things that you're not currently delivering. This workshop will be held November 19th and 20th. If you want to learn more about it, deepchangeforall.com slash events. Um, We're just the the main page will take you there and we'd love to have you. Awesome. Well, I I will definitely be there and uh, root and yawn and we'll learn from not only Bob, but from from Dan as well. So I'll link to all the information on there and uh, details of how to be a part of that. So last question I have is, as you have uh, carved out and, and made positive deviance a theme in your life, in your personal leadership style, how has positive deviance made you a better disciple of Jesus Christ? That's a great question. Just yesterday on LinkedIn, I read an article written by, first name is JR, I forget his last name, but he's an executive, a very busy executive who had recently lost his eight-year-old son. Mm. And this is only three, three weeks fresh. And he's telling the story basically of finding out that his son had died in his sleep overnight. And also the regrets that he has and would have lived his life differently, you know, especially that last couple of weeks had he known. And um, I had a moment of authentic self-awareness where all of a sudden I could see that even though a lot of my work is from home because I do a lot of writing. And so ostensibly, I should be more engaged with my children than he was because he's a busy executive flying all over the world. I recognized in my own life that you know, I had become distracted with this work movement that I'm trying to initiate with a really complicated house remodel that we're going through. We've had a stream of guests who have come and stayed with us from out of state. And I recognized that I wasn't engaged with my kids in a positively deviant way. I was being very normal with them. And on the surface of it, it probably just anybody else, they say, oh no, you're being a great dad. Like it looks good, whatever. But I hadn't been connecting with my kids in a meaningful way. And so I'm actually working on an article about this, but I've, I've created a, a one-week bucket list of the things I want to be this week. Not the things I want to do, but the things I want to be this week, mm-hmm. as though I might not be around after that week is over. And in the midst of creating that bucket list last night, or yesterday afternoon, and then last night, I had a, just some really awesome experiences with my children, with my wife. And these are really mundane. I mean, I got down and played Batman and Batgirl, but I wouldn't have if I hadn't been thinking like this. I built a Home Depot kit in 15 minutes before I had to go to the young men's activity. And I wouldn't have if I hadn't been thinking about this. And I tucked my 10-year-old daughter in and I wouldn't have done that. I've gotten away from that practice. And it's, it's sad for me to think about the months that I've gotten away from that when we're sleeping in different rooms and all the crazy things going on in our house. And she asked me, dad, how was your day? First question. I sat down on a bench and said, dad, how was your day? And all of a sudden I thought, I've missed four months of being able to talk about my day with this precious little girl. And then last but not least, I stayed up to help my wife clean up the mess from uh, canning peaches that she'd been doing all day. And it wasn't about the task. It was about the relationship with my wife. And I realized that because of all of this that's going on in our home, she and I haven't spent even an hour connecting with each other probably in weeks. And it was really meaningful to just share that time with her as I washed dishes and, you know, scrubbed the floor, got all the sticky stuff off the floor. And so this paradigm, I'm not perfect. I get trapped in the normal lens and the normal perspective all the time. I am so grateful though, that the Lord wakes you up and he gives you those little moments of self-awareness. And when you're willing to capture those moments and to, to act on those moments, he leads you into some meaningful experimentation. And And I hope over this next week, as I do this little activity of mine, I hope that uh, I'll become a better father, become a better husband, because I need need to be. 
That concludes my interview with Dan Duckworth. Bless his heart. We are going to have him on this podcast again and again and again. I want him involved in Leading Saints because I just so much appreciate his perspective, the research he's done, how he's impacted organizations. And every time I get together with Dan, we just can't stop talking. And uh, the insights I learned from him are priceless for sure. Be sure to be a part of that event he mentioned that's that's coming in November. And to get all the information about it, to uh, register and all that jazz, go to leadingsaints.org slash Dan, and that will take you directly to where you need to go. We'll put it in the show notes as well, but it'd be fun to see many of you there. And this would be a great one if you work in a corporate setting to uh, go to your HR manager or your department manager and say, hey, I, there's this event. I want to get a team there. And uh, oftentimes they have budgets for that make it happen and uh, Dan and Bob both speaking in the same location the same event is going to be so valuable I think you'll love it and don't forget text the word lead to 474747 for more details about how to gain access to the Liberating Saints virtual library it came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.